Hello. My name is Tucker Johnson, and I am your host today as we all experience NIMSY Live, where we talk about the latest and greatest in translation, localization, internationalization, culturalization, and all that fun stuff global companies need to delight their international customers, or at least not to piss them off too much. On this program, we invite guests who like to have fun and have some value to add for our audience of globalization professionals. I am always eager to provide a platform to those with a good story or a good data set, so let us know if there are any topics you'd like covered or guests we should reach out to for future episodes. If you aren't already subscribed to NIMSY Insights, now is your chance, whether you're watching this on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, your platform of choice. If you hit that subscribe or follow button, then you will be the first to be notified when NIMSY schedules new events like this, new episodes of NIMSY Live, new Workshop Wednesdays, all of that good stuff. Before we get started here, I just want to give a quick shout out, a quick plug over here to the NIMSY Language Technology Atlas. This is something that's very relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. If you have not checked this out, head on over to NIMSY.com and check out the Language Technology Atlas. We publish this every year and the 2022 version has just come out. Today we are going to be talking about quality management and terminology management. And so you can see not just the products we're going to be talking about today, but all of the other products available in that space to you. Quick introduction to the platform. Most of you guys are going to be watching this on LinkedIn Live in the LinkedIn events. And we like to do these things on LinkedIn because everyone's already here. Um, if you're joining us live today, make sure to take advantage of that networking tab. These LinkedIn events are one of the few areas on LinkedIn where you can interact with people, make new connections, even if you're not already connected to them. So go ahead and check that out. You can show your appreciation or during the, the stream by hitting that like button, hitting all of the other reaction buttons, or leave comments in the chat. We can bring the chat up on screen here. And I see the bots are already in the chat over on YouTube. Never fails YouTube. Um, so if you'd like to find yourself a hot girl here, head on over to YouTube and see what that comment is all about. Sorry about that. We'll have to moderate that better in the future. Quick, an introduction to today's topic. Today, we are talking about terminology management, and I have a very special guest here, Vasilis Korkas, who is the founder of a company called LexiQA. I've actually, I, I, I don't, I, I've never spoken it. I've always just seen it written. Is it LexiQA or LexiQA? Yeah, we... Uh prefer lexica it's lexica. as one word yeah <laughs> yeah lexica spelt lexiqa and we're talking about the reason that we're, we're going live today to talk about this subject is we actually have a workshop that we're collaborating on coming up in a couple of weeks here uh vasilis well let me let me just quickly introduce vasilis here uh um, following a successful academic career in the UK for 15 years, in 2015, Vasilis decided to channel his expertise in translation, in translation technologies and reviewing into a new tech company. In Lexica, he is now involved with content development, product management, and business operations. So kind of the guy that has his fingers in all of the cookie jars. So... 
Did I did I get everything? Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, Vasilis? Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, thank you, Tucker, for having me over tonight. Um, well, tonight here. Tonight here. It's this morning here. morning in the U.S. Yeah. I, I'm catching a plane after this. My day's just starting. Yeah. I'm heading down to <laughs> San Jose true. for Localization World. Um, so, yeah, uh, Lexica has been around since early 2016. Uh, we started off uh, uh, as a, a little group of three co-founders, uh, each coming from a slightly different angle with different expertise. And um, we put our heads together and tried to create a new kind of platform for quality assurance initially. Uh, the idea behind uh, all our work in the first few years was how can we automate the process of quality assurance? How can we bring it to the cloud in order to accommodate all those uh, online CAT tools and TMSs that had already started emerging in the market. It's a crowded and field. Obviously, yeah, now it has become much uh, more crowded, as you said. Yeah, there's a lot more players now in this field. Uh, but in the process since we started, uh, in every pretty much every kind of contact we've had with uh, enterprise clients, um, translation buyers, especially, uh, we realized that when it comes to terminology management, um, there isn't, there doesn't seem to be any uh, kind of pattern or um, something that would look like a strategy as to how do they manage their glossaries and their terminology resources. So the more we thought about that, the more we realized that there might be a, a little niche area in the uh, space of uh, quality management uh, where we might be offer, be able to offer some advice. And that's why we're, we've come together with Nimzi to put this workshop together and try to uh, attack this particular issue at an angle uh, that will help enterprise clients in particular to manage their resources more effectively and just bring that additional value to their localization programs. So let me let me start out by saying you're saying adding value by bringing more strategy to terminology management um, to enterprise clients. Now, let me play devil's advocate here and say I'm an enterprise client and I say to you, well, I already have a TMS and the TMS mm -hmm. has a glossary module in it. What what do I need additional strategy? What, what, why do I need to go further than that? Well, uh, the main reason is because terminology management doesn't start when localization starts. It actually starts mm. much earlier than that. Um, most of the work that involves terminology management um, in an enterprise uh, company um, has to do with content authoring and with the production of new terminology. So every time you come up with a new product or a new brand uh, in the confines of your company, the first thing you need to figure out is, okay, now what do I call this? How do I describe it to people who know nothing about it? In the source language. Yes, right. starting with that. Um, one thing that's now, always amazed me is that a lot of companies will spend a lot of money 
to get those brand names correct in the English language. Like they'll have focus groups and they'll hire marketing teams and public relations yeah. teams and just invest a lot of money in making sure that they get those English source terms right. But then when you come and ask for budget <laughs> to get the terminology exactly. right, it's a different story. Exactly. Uh, and uh, this is a kind of a disconnect, uh, the, the emphasis that is put on the content creation uh, uh, versus what do I do with all this content now? How do I sell it to other markets? And the assumption is that once you put in the initial investment in creating your content, then uh, putting this content out into other languages for other markets, you don't need to put the same effort anymore. Mm. It's already been done. But this is obviously completely wrong. Uh, one of the issues, obviously, is that terminology permeates throughout the organization. It's not something that you can contain within one department of a company. So you might start, let's say you start with marketing, okay. But in reality, when it comes to the terms that the marketing people are going to use to advertise, to promote a certain product, you have to go a couple of steps back. Let's say you start with a product manager, the person who comes up with the idea for the new product. Then you have to go through technical documentation, let's say, something like a user guide that will describe how you're going to use this new product. Then legal will come in and say, okay, this is what we need to take into account with respect to intellectual property or how we describe it on our websites, et cetera, et cetera. Then marketing comes in and says, okay, this is all good. I like this, the terminology, I can get it. But when it comes to SEO, I can't use these terms because they are too complicated. Yeah. As SEO so is a whole is, different ball yeah. of wax in the terminology yes. issue. Yeah. And uh, that means that potentially you could have silos within your own organization where each different team is handling terminology in a different way. And already you have a problem. This kind of fragmentation means that you are lacking in consistency. Hmm. And when you're trying to protect and promote your brand, lack of consistency is the first thing that's going to hurt you. And that's even before going out to other markets with other languages involved. So the idea of management is uh, you need to start as early as possible. And even if you haven't started early, just start, basically. That's the, the easiest piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, it's it's never too late. There's an ideal time to start, which is early, but it's never too late to yes. get into it. Yeah. Yes, and that's right. That's an important message because I think a lot of people are afraid to get into that for that reason is like, well, we've never had a, a clearly defined terminology strategy. We haven't done this work. And at this point, we have a system. It works. So... Why, why do I want to prioritize going back and clearly defining all of this? Because terminology management is not about the technology. It's mostly and primarily about the process. Um, we, I was actually looking at the NIMSI technology atlas just before we started. And um, it gave me a very interesting reminder that there are more than 30 different terminology management tools listed right now in the atlas. Yeah. 
Now that's a lot more variety than what used to be out there. Mm -hmm. I remember the old days when the only terminology tool you had was uh, either an Excel spreadsheet or multi-term, uh, which in the early versions was based on Microsoft Access. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember Microsoft Access. Mm, some people ago. might not even, <laughs> some people in our audience might not even know what Microsoft <laughs> Access is. But this was th that kind of basic infrastructure that was available then. And now you have all these tools that can do a number of different things. So the lack of technology is not a problem, but the lack of a process is a problem because you might have the right tool for you, what you think might fit in your localization process. It can, let's say, work together with all the other tools that you have in place, your CAD tools, your TMS, etc. But if you don't know what kind of data to put in the tool, then it's not going to give you back that kind of value that you want by automating that particular step in your process. It's actually, it can potentially raise more questions than answer the ones that are more pressing during the localization workflow. So it's, uh, it's a bit of a waste. You know, you have all the technology there and you don't get the, the benefit that you expect out of it. So, so let's go back. So we're talking about terminology management via technology. But you're saying we need to start with the process. So you yeah. say, you also say it's never too late to start. When we're talking about it's never too late to start, where do people start? Do they start by identifying a technology and then working backwards in the process? Or do they start by getting their process straight? Are there companies out there, is this what you guys do at Lexica? Do you help with this entire process? How does that look like? Well, for us... The emphasis is on the process because we know that uh, people can be quite uh, picky about what kind of technology they use. So our uh, the, the main focus of our advice when it comes to terminology management has to do with the process primarily. Mm. There are particular challenges that have to do with the nature of terminology management, which sort of spill over to the technology as well. In other words, there are practical issues that as a localization manager or as a quality manager, you might want to deal with. You might want the technology to help you, but uh, you can see that there are shortcomings in the technology, even today. So let's say you have uh, a, a word list in just two languages, never mind more than that. You could have potentially 20, 30 languages, sure, sure. a multilingual glossary. But let's say just a bilingual glossary, but you have English on one side and then you have a, a, a highly inflectional language on the other side. Now, what does your glossary contain at this stage? Is it a one-to-one -one correspondence? What happens to all the other variant forms that come out of the base form, let's say, of each term in the other language? Mm -hmm. What is the direction of the languages that you're dealing with. Where's the content created? Is it created in the US where you have English or is it created in China where you have Chinese? What language do you start with mm. in order to build your terminology? Because then based on the structures that you have in your databases, that can help you create almost a conceptual system 
it, it's not just a, a word list anymore. Right. It's all the other bits of information that will help you make decisions when you use that data later on. So you have the, the terms themselves. The metadata. Yes. Exactly. I hate yes. that term yeah. because it's often overused, <laughs> but that's what it is. Yes. It's the metadata, but, right? Well, uh, if in reality, uh, metadata was there even before HTML was a thing. Yeah. In terminology science. Yeah. Because you have, uh, apart from the head term itself, you have contextual examples, you have definitions, you have part of speech information, you have grammatical information, mm -hmm. you have preferred terminology versus obsolete terminology and so on. So all these bits of information are there to help you make decisions later on so when it comes to localizing your process. So like just to dumb that down for, for, for the rest of the class here, myself included, that's like, so I have an English term. The English term is bottle, right? Water yeah. bottle, right? And, or let's say to drink, right? I have a verb as a term, right? If yep. I translate that into Spanish, it could be, it could look very different depending upon who's doing the drinking. Well, that's a bad example, but you know, some languages are going to look very different. Is the bottle the subject of the sentence or is it the object of the sentence? Is it, you know? It's uh, the the position of the term in the sentence doesn't necessarily affect what the concept is behind it. Right. So the term can be very easily matched and mapped on a different language. But the nature of the terms that you choose to put in a glossary can have a very uh, substantial impact. In the example you mentioned, for example, a good terminology practice will tell you you cannot have verbs as terms. Right. You, you can start from the noun. You can tell I'm not very then, good. I'm not a terminologist. No, 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 no. As, no, no, no. as soon as I said that, I was like, verb in a glossary? What are you talking about, Tucker? This is, yeah, but this happens to be one of the most common uh, practices. You go on a corporate uh, multilingual glossary and you get about 20 to 30% verb forms. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm mm -hmm. not talking about ING forms. I'm talking about actual verbs. Uh, in the present tense and the past tense and all that. And you're thinking, okay, now how do I differentiate between, let's say, meeting and meeting? Which one right. is the noun? Which one is the verb form? Metadata. When it comes to, when it comes to picking the right term in, the, in whatever language you're localizing, even knowing that small difference will, make, uh, will have a huge impact on the quality. And, and that's just meeting, never mind the other more complicated fields, right? right? Um, when, uh, let's say, terminology started evolving as a science, it was early 20th century when uh, Industrial Revolution had kicked in for a number of decades, and now you had the first few, let's say, production chains. So you will see the main drive for terminology nomenclature developing in the automotive industry mm -hmm. because they had parts which needed to be replicated in a different market and then trading those parts from one country to another so all that became essential as a as a system as a conceptual system and that's always the background for any terminology you want to build putting a word list together is very easy very simple well, when you want to put that word list in a in a tool that will connect with your 
workflow later on mm-hmm. is a much bigger challenge because you cannot think just at the word level anymore. Right. It's not about the word. It's about what's behind it. Mm-hmm. What does it mean? What does it connect to? If this is a part of a wheel of a car, where in the wheel will you find it, for example? You want to make sure that the mechanic can understand what you're telling them as much as the driver of the car or as much as the person who is writing a, a marketing copy for that car. So is this so something that everyone needs to know? Is this something that you need to get a experienced terminologist to work on? Because I've worked with terminologists before. I was sad to say, not as often as I probably should have, right? Because even with the experience that I had back when I actually had a day job and was managing translations, even with my experience, I was kind of that guy who's like, all right, let's just slap together a word list and then we'll send Mm -hmm. that word list to the translators and have this Excel file with a glossary and then we'll import that glossary into our TMS of choice and bada bing, bada boom, terminology management, right? And then I actually worked on a project where with a terminologist who knew what they were doing and spent a lot of money. Yeah, not that much money. I mean, but you know, a qualified terminologist is not cheap, but they're worth it, right? They so, wouldn't be, yeah. They're a kind of a specialist breed mm-hmm. of their own. Um, but uh, exactly because they know how to build the whole system bottom up uh once you're at the top you can see all that value that has built right up until that point um these let's say positions wouldn't necessarily be very common even on the uh buyer side there might be uh, teams of people in those silos that i mentioned earlier so you might have people working on terminology that is appropriate for marketing or is appropriate for legal appropriate for technical authoring and so on. But then you need to somehow bring all that together and find where there might be gaps, where there might be overlaps. And you always need to take into account that you're not working on your own. So the biggest challenge, I think, for terminology management is not finding necessarily the right people to do the job or finding the right tools. It's making sure you remember that there are many stakeholders when it comes to knowledge management. There are many people that need to be involved both in the creation and the consumption of the terminology. And at the end of the day, because we're looking at a small part of content creation, it's also very important to remember who is the advocate of this, who who has the final say, who's going to be the person who's going to push this terminology to be used across the organization. Are we talking about source terminology or are we talking about multilingual terminology or both? Well, we're talking about both. I would say we still need to start with the source sure, because that's where all the content comes from. Okay. Uh, and then the localization departments, the localization product program managers, they will be amongst those stakeholders that have a say as to what would be a good terminology resource for them to be able to use it. Get so that's where they come in. Yeah, get everybody signed off on it before you translate it into 20 languages, right? Absolutely. Because terminal, the only thing, 
The only thing harder than creating a terminology or creating a term in a term base is modifying that term <laughs> in a term base later on Especially, down the road. Especially, yeah, after your resources as well and your tools are sort of embedded in your process, right. the changing any of that becomes a nightmare. So you want to get this right as early as you can. That's why I mentioned do it early. <laughs> well, you mentioned, I was checking out your website over at Lexica's website beforehand, and something caught my eye under the advanced mm -hmm. terminology checks. It says, Lexica's terminology checks have been designed with user experience as the biggest priority. And then blah, blah, blah. It says a bunch of other stuff too. What are we talking about with user experience? I, I don't think of user experience when I think of terminology checks. And who is the user and how is the user experience improved? So um, there are two, um, let's say, levels for, of user experience when it comes to terminology management. Okay. One is how do I manage the resources that I'm going to use? So my glossaries. Is it easy for me to run uh, glossary checks in my cat tool. Does my cat tool even have glossary checks? Right. Because in some cases they don't. Right. Then it's fair enough. Okay. Um, if they do, what kind of feedback do I get from those resources, from those glossaries that I'm using? So what kind of information do I get as a user when I run those checks that will help me decide whether that's the right term to use or whether I need to change something in the text and so on? So that's one of part of the user experience. The second part goes back to the challenge that I mentioned earlier uh, that has to do with uh, how you deal with variations. And people who uh, deal with inflectional and highly variable morphologically uh, languages, like Indian languages, uh, Central European languages, the Baltics, for example, these are highly inflectional languages that can produce dozens of variables, either because of noun cases, for example, or because they use postpositions and so on and so forth. So you start with one morpheme with a base root of the words, and then you can add all sorts of different suffixes to make variant forms. Now, those variants are practically never available in a standard glossary, right. not the ones that you will find in a corporate environment anyway. And there is Which, very little... Pr practically speaking, what does that mean? Does that mean a bunch of like false positives when running a terminology check? Does it... That's right. Yeah. Uh, there is a, a number of um, false errors that can be generated because of the lack of that kind of information. So it could be that you're getting a term uh, flagged up because it tells you that the glossary doesn't have it. Now you know that it's the right term. It's just that it's in a different case. It right. might be a, not in the nominative, let's say. So in those cases, you have to try to find a way to deal with this problem. And this is part of uh, one of the, the latest developments, let's say, that we've tried to address at Lexica. It's been to develop a morphological engine for terminology checks, which means that we can look at the latest advances in NLP and try to bring that into terminology management to help with finding those alternative forms, providing them to the user. And then the user gets to see, okay, 
this is the suggestion I need to pick for my translation now. Okay. I don't, so it fills a lot of the information gaps, let's say that a standard glossary as a word list would normally have. Right. And that's part of the, what we say, the second level of the user experience. Got it. <clears throat> All right. What, what about things like, so we're talking about word lists and with word lists, there are the standard, you know, this term equals that term in a foreign language. You also have do not translate lists um, mm -hmm. and you also have names and product names and personal names. How would you go about identifying? Because a lot of companies are very particular about their product names. How would you go about identifying right. and treating those in a in fact, term strategy? Yeah, this actually happens to be the most common type of um, glossary you will find in a corporate environment. Even before you find a bilingual terminology, you will find a monolingual word list, which is basically an a list of brands and product names and organizations, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on what kind of environment you're looking at. So in those cases, these lists can be monolingual and they would be used as inclusion lists, as they're called. So in other words, if uh, let's say I have a new product and I want it to be spelt in a specific way, or it might be a camel case thing that the marketing department has come up with. I want to make sure that the camel case spelling is there correctly all the time. Now, you can't expect a normal spell checking dictionary to be able to capture any of this, but a brand name glossary can. And they can tell you every time that you, as a translator, you're writing that particular brand name in your translation incorrectly it's going to flag it up and tell you this is the correct way to write it mm -hmm. because your glossary is running in the background um, the flip side of this is that you might have as you said the obsolete terminology or let's say blacklisted words right so you could have again monolingual word lists either in english uh, or in the target language that you're working on and uh, there you would have let's say, put together all those terms that you want to make sure are never used in translations of your products. Mm -hmm. Now, there could be various reasons for that. Maybe because uh, some of these terms and uh, are associated with older versions of the products, which are not used anymore, which are not available in the market. You have updated your terminology for the new versions, and therefore you don't want to make that kind of connection. So in the in the customer's mind, you right. want to make sure that they are up to speed with the new fancier terminology, let's say. Another reason why you want to be uh, in a position to protect your brand from overlapping terminology for similar products of other companies. Wow. So they might have, let's say, a car with different parts. Now, this particular part doesn't mean it doesn't exist in the other car. It's the same part, but it has a different name. Right. So, so you want to make sure all that is excluded. And that name is going to be different in every language too. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So, we're um, now. I'm. No, I'm a horrible linguist. I started out trying to translate some stuff very, very, very long time ago, but I kind of went the project management route because I'm a shitty translator. 
So I, when I'm thinking about quality, when I'm thinking about terminology, I'm always kind of looking at it through the lens of project management. And it's one thing mm -hmm. that the, the linguists, of course, the translators, of course, need to have access to the terminology as they're translating it. But one thing that project managers will do when they get that project back is they're going to run a report on it or, yep. you know, a good project manager will run some basic QA checks on it. And, and they will have the time to do it. it that's a good project manager who also isn't overworked. I should clarify, yes. right? So what is what is the role of reporting um, when we're talking about automated, uh, automated quality checks, automated terminology checks? What is the role of reporting? And are there any KPIs or metrics that need to be looked at from a project management perspective, I would say? Well, um, this is one of those issues that are central to the way we have built Lexca in the sense that we want to bring the quality uh, process as early as possible in the workflow. So the reporting is for us like the very last security layer in the whole localization workflow. Hmm. It comes at the very end, the translation has already been done. Uh, all the checks that you would expect a translator or a proofreader have been done. And now the project manager comes in and runs a final check. And the only thing that they can reliably check for is the terminology. And this is probably the only thing that they don't need to know the language for in order to be able to find errors. Okay. For every other error class, they need to understand what the target language is in some depth before yeah. they can make judgments whether something is wrong or not. Right. But the terminology is there. You have the tool telling you this term is matched, this term is not matched. So I can produce now a report and go back to my translators and tell them, you know, maybe you've missed those by mistake or are they false positives? Can you confirm any of that? So right. that's part of the process. As far as we're concerned, the actual quality assurance takes place much earlier in the translation, during the production. Which is, that's, which is the ideal, right? You want yes. to be finding the, the, you want to be doing the QA, you know, QA at source is the buzzword, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. But yeah. the and term applies here. You want to be doing the QA as you're doing it at the source, not on the back end. Because then, especially with different time zones and stuff, that can delay a project 24, 48 hours. If the PM runs have, a report, yeah. sends it back to the translator, the translator reviews it. It's a, it's a very ugly domino effect that you really want to avoid. Right. Um, so by having the quality checks embedded in your translation workflow, it means that you have immediate feedback on any kind of quality check that you want to uh, emphasize on. Now, one of those checks, of course, is the terminology. Sure. If you have the right tools connected together you can get that input from your glossaries, from your resources, immediate impacts on the workflow. So that kind of value is something that adds up over time. It's not necessarily something that you will immediately say, okay, now because I use this glossary in this project, the quality of the translation is 10 times better. I have this additional gain, let's say, right. in terms of profit because of that. It doesn't work you like that. You can't think of quality like that, though, right? 
no, it, no. It needs to kind of uh, build up. Right. Uh, but once you get to that point, you can start looking at the difference that, that this process makes, not just for adding value, but preventing loss of value, which is something that has a lot more impact uh, for people who are making the decisions for budgeting, for making those resources available. Well, and this is something that, that I'm talking about all the time, which is that quality isn't a differentiator, right? It's like high quality is not a differentiator. It's it's expected, right? It's like when you hire a translator or a translation company to provide a translation, it's expected that it's good quality, right? So it's not something that is like, once you get to a certain point, it's good quality. You're not going to like use a new tool and make it 150% quality. You're just trying to protect it from slipping down into unacceptable quality. Well, uh, tools have their limitations right. uh, when it comes to protecting you from this kind of value loss. So there are still gaps in that sense. I mean, this is something we see when we compare, uh, let's say, our own uh, tool versus other tools out there in the market, especially the ones that are built in CAD tools. Now, you have to understand, built in CAD tools, uh, sorry, built in QA tools within okay. a CAD Within a CAD tool, yeah, yeah. I, I hear yes. you. Yes, yeah. sorry, my slip all the time. Um, they don't specialize in QA. They minimum amount of time has been spent on creating the most basic checks. The number of false negatives you have in systems like that is enormous. And I cannot emphasize that enough because the main emphasis for a lot of people working with quality tools has to do with false positives. But that is, let's say, a kind of a false narrative when it comes to most of the QA tools out there, which don't have the the range of checks to be able to tell you, okay, now at least I've covered most of the bases. I can tell you whether your translation is good or not. Right. So when the base, uh, the, the comparison base is so low, uh, there is a lot of potential and a lot of space that can be covered uh, when it comes to increasing your quality with metrics, with actual metrics. So, Quality is important, it can be measured, and it can be applied in multiple steps of your workflow. Whether it can be expected or not, this is a whole other matter on, right. for debate. Well, yeah, yeah. I'd be, I'd be happy to come over for a, another session. On we this. can. It's a very long one. <laughs> I, I didn't say, when, I'm when I talk about expectations, no, I'm not talking about reasonable expectations all the time. I'm just talking about expectations. Clients have their sure. expectations. So. Sure, of course. I, I see a question in chat uh, from Laura. Hi, Laura. Hello. Who are the typical consumers of your term bases? So can you talk about that? Who's, who's your typical client over at Lexica? Well, let's, uh, let's start with something uh, that needs to be clarified. We don't have any term bases. We don't own any term bases. These are all the term bases that the clients themselves provide. And they just... Uh, add them to our own automated workflow in order to be able to get feedback on the fly Fair. while they're translating. So the owners are the creators in most cases. Uh, in our experience with enterprise clients, they would normally work 
from a top-down approach. In other words, the localization has already happened and then they will work on terminology extraction. So rather than working bottom-up, meaning from the people who write the contents and who create the new products, get the terminology in the source language and then start building up in all the other languages, they go the other way around. Yeah. They have all the new products. They get all the content translated first. And then after that is done, they extract the bilingual terminology, let's say. Um, this kind of uh, retrospective approach is not always the best because you cannot expect your translators to do that kind of work for you. A lot of the times they don't understand what the product is. I'll, t- as I'll well tell you, though, as, you as a former localization PM, a lot of local PMs do expect the translators to do that. And yes. kind of for free. I'm not saying it's right. It's just it happens, though, where it's like, hey, here's the first project we've got for this client. 10,000 words. Can you please translate this and extract any terms that need to go and then send me an Excel file afterwards? Yeah. Which yeah. is kind of bad <laughs> well right. it, it's, then, not uh, you, it's not ideal it's not ideal it's not ideal far from ideal but uh, you know having this resource now this uh, bilingual excel file makes you think that now you have terminology management in place right. this is a bit complacent for large organizations terminology management cannot work like that this is like a very small two-dimensional piece of a much larger three-dimensional engine. All these departments that have to come together, all these people who make decisions about what the content needs to be, never mind making decisions about the impacts that this terminology will have on your brand and how your customers will perceive your products if something goes wrong. So to back to the question, who are the typical consumers of your term bases? I mean, in a nutshell, like you're saying, typically it's not from the ground up, it's from the localization team. So typically you're working with the localization team. I'm not saying that that's, that's ideal, right. but that's who you're working with. That's right. I mean, uh, it's the structure for most, uh, uh, let's say, translation buyers. That, that's how they approach the whole uh, process. Uh, so we don't, I can't think of any example where we would have direct contact with uh, an in-house terminology team, hmm. let's say, in an enterprise uh, client. Well, so in my experience, it would always the, be, the in-house terminology teams, they don't call themselves terminology teams. They call themselves <laughs> yeah. marketing teams, right? Or, or something like that. Yeah, it could start from the marketing. It could start from technical or product teams or what the authoring teams, but they don't think of themselves as terminologists. That's right. They don't necessarily have that in their job title. Right. Uh, But part of their work is exactly that. They have to come up with the terminology that will be used for the product. Um, Now, how much do those teams communicate with each other? how much consensus there is about what kind of terminology will be used, how much they get the buy-in of the localization teams as well. Because let's say uh, a language manager who is part of the localization team might be able to tell you, you know what, this particular term for your new product, it works great in English, but in Hindi, it wouldn't work. Right. Or in some other language. Uh, So... 
perhaps we need to think about a different approach as to how to call it. And this is what you would do if you were looking at the whole process as internationalization, mm-hmm. even for terminology. Right? Which, which is a big challenge, uh, not just uh, from absolutely. a terminology standpoint, from all across the board as getting those teams within the enterprise where the content is created, whether it's yeah. the product team, the technical documentation team, the marketing team, the legal team, getting them to understand or is, or even appreciate, hopefully, the, the complexities of localization, it causes a yeah. lot of challenges, right? Absolutely. And the, this is, uh, to, to circle back, this is the main reason we want to do this workshop to bring all these issues to the attention of uh, enterprise uh, clients as to how all these uh, potential obstacles uh, that even lowly terminology might bring in the process. You know, it's one of those pieces in the process that is often overlooked. And uh, it's also uh, one of those small pieces that can cause enormous damage if it's not done right. right. You know, for its size, uh, in terms of what the whole process is, uh, the damage that wrong terminology can bring, or let's say wrong brand name, even just spelling a brand name wrongly can have an enormous effect. Oh, you can get Negative. into whole legal issues too. I mean, people can oh, go absolutely. to jail for the wrong term if, you, if you're uh, using the wrong term in the wrong place. And it's not even just brand names. I mean, there are other occasions like intellectual property, uh, pharmaceuticals. There are all sorts of industries where correct use of terminology is like priority number one. Right. And then you realize that uh, they're still working on Excel sheets. (laughs) And they, uh, well. Excel sheets are important. Excel sheets are important. I shouldn't. I used a lot of Excel sheets when I was managing localization projects. If used properly, if they used properly, they can actually help a lot. Uh, In the sense, especially of recycling, let's say, legacy data that you might want to bring to a new platform. Usually, the intermediary will be some kind of Excel file. Yeah, if you're going to if you're going to transition tools, you're going to export it as a CSV or an XLS. yeah, I, I, I'm not dissing Excel sheets by any means. Okay, but, on the record, you know, when you, no hate, no hate record, for Excel, because no I know there's a lot of people listening that are using Excel sheets for no, glossary. No, no. Good job. Absolutely <laughs> not. <laughs> uh, but, you know, basing your entire terminology management process on uh, a simple bilingual word list is not enough. It's not good enough. So that's what uh, we wanted to, one of the things we want to raise uh, through our workshops uh, so that using this uh, first workshop in the middle of November, we can then start talking with uh, teams from different buyers specifically about the problems we have, they have, and then try to pick out what's the right way to fix this or What's the right way to build it, and et cetera, et cetera. Then we can focus our attention on uh, specific company-related issues rather than generic terminology management issues. I want to, before we're, we're, I'm looking at the clock here, and I want to be, I've got a plane to catch, let's put it that way, headed to Lokworld. But one question I wanted to ask you, when it comes to automated QA checks versus human QA checks, 
And my kind of, my stance on that is you should be using both, right? If you're just using humans, then you're missing an opportunity. If you're just using the technology, then you're definitely missing on something. What are your thoughts on this, on the balance between human and technology-driven QA assurance, quality assurance processes, and how is that shifting as we move into the future and the technology um, gets more sophisticated? Um, I think the biggest shift has to do with scale. In mm. the older days, uh, when we were relying on human revision alone, uh, the amount of uh, content that you'd be able to check was very little. Right. But now, with the technology working at that kind of scale, where you could process dozens of millions of words of content a month, that is impossible for even large teams of human revisors. It just wouldn't happen. To manage. Yeah, exactly. No, it wouldn't happen. But this is where the good thing comes into play, the, this uh, synergy between the technology and the humans. And even from our uh, perspective, for example, our tool is not there to replace human revisors, it's there to help them be more productive. The same principle that you had with translation memories since day one, that's never going to change because when it comes to quality, um, the final judgment is always with a human reviser let's say, right. or translator. They have a much bigger and broader understanding of the context in every case. They know whether something that is flagged up by a tool is actually something that needs to be fixed. The point is, if you have, uh, I don't know, a thousand pages to check, a tool can check those thousand pages for you right. in a minute. And then right. you can and go through, it, and so it's it a productivity tool, warnings. essentially. So it's Absolutely. still a human-centric yeah. process. It's just a new productivity tool to That's help it. reviewers do more. So the, the challenge for QA tools, uh, even for like our own, is to make sure that when you have those thousand pages of content, your checks are accurate enough to not produce all these false positives that make yeah. revisors you know, right. uh, first the day that they had to use it. That's the whole point. Yeah. When you're talking about user uh, experience earlier, like from a PM perspective, that's the first thing that comes to my mind is false positives. If I have to yes. review a list of 100 false positives and there is one issue that's an actually a real issue, then at a certain point that just becomes inefficient. Inefficient is not a strong enough term. It just becomes ridiculous for a project manager or for a linguist, for that matter, to be able to do. Absolutely. And this is why we think that, uh, well, not just think, we know for a fact that any tool that uh, is dependent entirely on generic uh, QA checks that are based on the principle of consistency, meaning that if I have a let's say a number in the source text, I need to see the same number in the target text. Well, that's not how translation works. You can write that number as a word and the right. number is still there. So there are a number of uh, levels where that can go wrong and can create this kind of uh, huge number of false positives that discourages people from even engaging with the quality process at the end of the day. Oh, I'm looking at the comments here. Um, 
going through this. Thank you, says Laura. Manuel says, uh, either in a spreadsheet or in a cat tool or similar, uh, either in, okay. Um, could you share some more info on the workshop in November? Perfect segue into my final question here. Tell us, I know we started off talking about it a little bit, um, but where do I find more information? I know the information, it's not published yet. It's not, it's not out there yet. This is a teaser, right? That's so, right. So if I'm interested, where do I need to subscribe? Where do I need to check? How do I find out more information about this workshop that's coming up? So uh, together with uh, Nimzi, we're going to run a quick marketing campaign, let's say, uh, starting from Wednesday of this week. Uh, two weeks ahead of the actual day of the workshop. The workshop is going to take place on Wednesday the 16th of November at 3 o'clock afternoon Central European time. And hopefully we'll be able to capture as many people as we can during that time. That will be together with Roman, uh, VP of uh, Consulting. Uh, technical Solutions. Yes, VP of right. Solutions, VP of Solutions, yes. I think. And uh, Roman's great. From, Roman's a great workshop facilitator. Yeah. Oh my we've, gosh. We've talked a couple of times with Roman and he's really on the ball. Yeah, he, he's great. Anything. So you guys are going to um, be in good hands. Um, if so, We are going to advertise it, of course, widely. So when people see the, the information, they'll be very welcome to, to join. So go follow Lexica. Um, follow, if you're not already following Nimsy Insights, um, I know we publish a lot of this stuff over on LinkedIn, so go follow us on LinkedIn. Um, here's our page right here. Looks like we're live, 28 people watching. Hello, I have 28 people. Um, you can sign up for Nimsy's newsletter as well. Go to nimsy.com and sign up for our, we send a weekly, I believe, newsletter, which is really great. That's put together by Nika over on our marketing team. And if you want a weekly summary of just what's going on, the latest and greatest in research, it, it's a great resource anyways. So basically stay tuned. We have the date, November 16th, you said? That's right. November 16th, 3 o'clock p.m. Uh, Central Time, Central European Time. So you can go ahead and put that as a placeholder on your calendar now. And I think that about settles it. Uh, any closing thoughts, Vasilis, before I go jump on a plane to San Jose? Uh, have fun at Lockworlds. That oh, will I be will. my goodbye. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is going to be my first Lockworld in years in, a while. Yeah. in years so i am very much looking forward to it well thank you so much for coming on the show today and thanks this, for having me Tucker. this has been our first live stream since we haven't done this for a very long time so i apologize to everybody out there who's wondering what happened to nimsy live we're still here we're scheduling new episodes so if you have a recommendation for an episode of nimsy live or you'd like to be a guest here on the program you can reach out to live at nimsy.com and pitch your idea. We'd, we'd love to have you on. With that, ladies, gentlemen, chat, we are out of time for today. So if you've enjoyed this Nimsy Live experience, then meet us next time on, I don't know when the next time is. Go check us out on LinkedIn. Find uh, the next episode. It's already scheduled, I'm sure. If you've, uh, and... Yeah, as you can tell, I'm, I'm not practiced with this outro. If you're not already signed up, go sign up via LinkedIn events. Follow Nimsy Insights for, for more information. Once again, finally, my name is Tucker Johnson, host of Nimsy Live. 
It has been my pleasure to join you all today. I appreciate our guest, Vasilis. I appreciate my colleagues here at Nimsy Insights doing all the hard work so I can have these fun live stream conversations. And I appreciate everybody else in our industry who fills out Nimsy surveys and schedules briefings with our analysts so that we can include it in our published industry research. Lastly, I appreciate you, the audience, who are joining us live today and all of the dialogue and chats. Everybody who left comments and questions and especially anybody who wants to leave criticisms after this. With that, I look forward to next time and I wish you all a wonderful day.